This week's episode is made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com. Good morning, Memphis. You're listening to Meanwhile in Memphis on WYXR Radio 91.7 FM. Meanwhile in Memphis is a program dedicated to conversations that celebrate the organizations, initiatives, and people that are shaping Memphis for the better. The Meanwhile in Memphis radio show and podcast are brought to you by Noon Memphis, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to develop, activate, and retain the city's most important resource, its people. Before we dive into today's episode, we've got a few updates for you. Interns and college students are invited to join us for a free speed mentoring session this Thursday, July 20th. This is a great opportunity to gain experience as you prepare to take the first steps in your career. Plus, attendees will get to connect with local professionals and other students to begin building a professional network. Head to newmemphis.org slash events for details. Next up is the New Memphis Leadership Summit on August 11th. This is the premier leadership conference for professionals of all levels in the Mid-South. Join us to enjoy a full day of interactive programming with phenomenal facilitators and learn how you can level up as a leader. Head to newmemphis.org events for details and to register. In today's episode, we're revisiting the 2023 TEDx Memphis Conference. We'll link full talk videos in our show notes. Today's talks are connected through the spirit of storytelling. We'll hear from a range of speakers who, who utilize the art form in different ways to make connections, learn, and feed their souls. Our first talk from the TEDx Memphis stage is by Darius Wallace. Darius speaks about the healing modality of storytelling for the storyteller as well as for the listener through the example of his own miraculous encounter with a yogi. Darius is no stranger to stories. He has been in several Hollywood movies and is a founding member of the Tennessee Shakespeare Company here in Memphis, Tennessee, and he has also served as the TEDx Memphis coach. Enjoy Storytelling as a Yoga for the Soul by Darius Wallace. Once there was a 26-year-old young man, and he struggled with anxiety and depression. He had a traumatic event happen in his life. And he had the wild idea to take his own life. And he carried pills in his pocket for the day in which he would do it. And one day, he was sitting on a subway train in New York. And across the way was another man, about 20 years older. And there was something peculiar about this other man because he was sitting in lotus position. And the young man was very curious because he had always wanted to learn yoga. So he decided to ask, are you a yogi? And the yogi said, I am. He said, well, do you teach yoga? And the yogi said, I do. And he said, well, will you teach me? And the yogi said, I will. And the young man said, how much? And the yogi said, nothing. So the young man traveled to the yogi's home in Brooklyn every week. And every week, the yogi noticed that the young man was very, very sad. And the yogi was very concerned. So he sat the young man down to tell him a story about a time in his life when he was 26 years old and he suffered from anxiety and depression and he had a traumatic event 
happened in his life. And he had the wild idea to take his own life. And he carried pills in his pocket for the day in which he would do it. And he did it. The yogi did it. And as he was hovering above his body, he could see his family members coming in mourning and broken because of what he had done to himself. And he wished in that moment that he could wipe away the tears from their eyes. And in that moment, he found himself back in his body. And he decided from that moment on, with his second chance at life, that he would dedicate his life to the happiness of others and that he would do that through the ancient art of yoga. And the young man was shocked. And he hesitantly, cautiously reached into his pocket and he pulled out his pills and he showed the yogi and the yogi said, oh, so this is the reason why I was led to tell you this story. Everyone in here is a great storyteller. Everyone in here has the ability to tell a story that can heal, transform, maybe even save a life. In that one moment, the yogi, the young man, and the event of suicide connected together. It became one. It yoked together. And it's interesting about the word yoga. Yoga means to yoke, to yoke to or unite with. Connect to, to what? To the all that is within us all. We are all suffering from anxiety. It's an epidemic. The National Institute of Mental Health says there are two types of anxiety. There's the anxiety that you can overcome and you get over it, but then there's the anxiety that's unnatural, the disorder that stays with you that you go to sleep with every night and you wake up to every morning and it affects your performance, your work, your relationships. It may even cause you to take your own life. But whether it's with natural anxiety or unnatural anxiety, we have learned to deal with it through the ancient art of yoga. And when I practice yoga, it seems like the knots of anxiety and depression unlock, and I feel this inspiration and joy and serenity. And it's interesting because Medline says that the benefits of yoga are it it lowers your blood pressure, it creates better breath flow, blood flow, it decreases anxiety and depression, and it increases inspiration and joy. But I notice that when I tell stories, it also unlocks anxiety and depression, and it gives me inspiration and joy. And when I studied what that is, the very well mind says about storytelling, the same thing that was said about yoga. Storytelling lowers your blood pressure. It creates better breath flow, blood flow. It decreases anxiety and depression. So imagine that the telling stories can also bring healing to your mind, your soul, and your body. Storytelling and yoga are both healing modalities for storytelling, not just for the listeners, but for the storyteller as well. I 
have been this size since I was 13 years old. And not only have I been this size since I was 13 years old, I also had sideburns. And I didn't just have sideburns, I had a 19-year-old girlfriend. It was the 80s. <laughs> we didn't know no better. But I also, because of my size, I was prime target for gang life. And I got involved. But all was interrupted when a man came up to me and introduced himself as the high school theater teacher. And he wanted to teach me theater. And when he taught me theater and storytelling, I noticed that the knots of anxiety and depression began to unlock within my soul and my life got a lot better and I started to see myself differently and I let go of street life and I embraced the life of storytelling and I continued with it and now I'm an actor. And so about five years ago, I was able to get with my high school theater teacher and I was able to thank him. I said, thank you, Mr. Jennings, because when you taught me storytelling and acting, it relieved me of my anxiety and depression. I was suffering from that. And you transformed and changed. You saved my life. And he said to me, you know, that's interesting. Because back during that time, I suffered from anxiety and depression as well. And when I was teaching you and the students storytelling and acting, it relieved me of my anxiety and depression. It transformed my life. You saved my life. And so I'd like to thank you. In one moment, myself, my high school theater teacher, and the event of storytelling transformed our lives. There's a story that I tell to young people, to university students, to uh, corporations and organizations, because it's a universal story. It connects us. It yokes us. It's your story. It's our story. And it's a story about an eagle who thought he was a chicken. One day, an eagle's egg was placed into the nest of chickens. And one day, the eaglet hatched, and he looked around, and he saw he was surrounded by all these little chickens. So the eagle, he began to act like a chicken. The eagle began to walk like a chicken. The eagle began to talk like a chicken. The eagle pecked his neck in the ground like a chicken and flew only a few feet off the ground like a chicken. But one day, the eagle grew up, and he looked into the sky, and he saw a speck. And the speck became a ball, and the ball became a bird, and the bird became a huge beast, flying in the sky, soaring in the winds. And the eagle, who thought he was a chicken, said to his neighbor, who was a chicken, Wow, what kind of bird is that? I want to be just like him. And his friend said, Oh, why, that's an eagle, the king of all the birds. But don't you give it a second thought. You'll never be like him. So the eagle never gave it a second thought, and he almost died thinking he was a chicken until the big old brown, beautiful bird flying in the sky, soaring in the winds. When he saw the eagle playing with the chicken, he said, Hey there, young fella, what you doing down there with all them chickens? Why don't you come on up here with me and fly high in the sky and soar in the winds? But the eagle, who thought he was a chicken, said, Excuse me, sir, you're greatly mistaken. I am a chicken. But the big old brown bird laughed. He said, Whoo-hoo, the devil is a lie. You are an eagle. 
Why, look at your big old brown feathers. Help protect you when you're flying close to the sun. And look at your big old brown wings. Help power yourself up here and woohoo! Camera person, look at your big old feet. What size shoe you wear? Nine and a half help catch your prey and your fierce eyes to help you have great vision. Well, the chicken said, don't listen to the big old brown bird in the sky. He's lying to you. Besides, nobody is allowed to fly any higher than any of us can fly. You are a chicken. You're just a deformed chicken. That's the reason why you look the way you do. Well, in this moment, the eagle, who thought he was a chicken, had to make a choice. He could choose to believe he was an eagle or he could choose to believe he was a chicken. And there was a sense of freedom in the choice. So he chose to believe he was an eagle. And he began to flap his wings and flew higher and higher and grew stronger and stronger and flew high into his destiny. And the young man took the pills out of his pocket. And the yogi said, oh, so this is the reason why I felt led to tell you this story, where you have a choice to make. You can either leave the pills here with me, or you can take the pills with you and take your own life. And the young man had to make a choice, and he felt a sense of freedom in the choice. And so he chose to leave the pills with the yogi. And he went on to live his life. He went on to live his dream to be a storyteller. And that young man is standing right here before you today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our next TEDx Memphis talk is by Fletcher Cleaves. Fletcher Cleaves is a native of Memphis, Tennessee, who decided to turn his tragedy into a testimony. As an advocate and motivational presenter, he speaks out against the dangers of texting and driving, as well as overcoming adversity. He aspires to share his journey in hopes that it will save lives and inspire others to reach their goals, regardless of the challenges they may face. Enjoy The Dangers of the World's Smallest Slot Machine by Fletcher Cleaves. How y'all doing this evening? All right, I love the energy, I love the energy. Uh, we're gonna jump right into it. I'm here for a good time, not a long time. So slide, please. How many of y'all know what this is? Right, okay, okay. So for those of you that are under the age of 20 years old, about four or 500 years ago, this was the first model <laughs> of a cell phone. This came out of a cell phone. It allowed people to stay connected. So I mean, you no longer had to find a quarter to rush to a pay phone to make an emergency phone call. You no longer had to weave through traffic to try to hurry up and get by the landline and make sure nobody else was there at 8 o'clock because the girl you met at the movie, you told her to call you right at 8 o'clock. Now, fast forward to today. We now have these slide. Smartphones. These smartphones have took the connectivity to a whole nother level. I mean, now we can email, we can text message. I mean, a father in California can text his son in Miami and let him know that to have a great day. A mother can video call her daughter from Wyoming that she's thousands of miles away from to let her know that she's thinking of her. This sense of connection has taken it to a whole nother level. 
But what happens when this connection becomes addicting? A recent study has shown that a cell phone is considered the world's smallest slot machine because it allows the brain releases endorphins every time you get a notification as if you were hitting the jackpot. So you get an email, cha-ching, jackpot. You get a text message, cha-ching, jackpot. The same sense you get of hitting a jackpot, your brain releases those same endorphins. Now what happens when you mix this addiction with something that needs extreme focus? And I'll use something that we're more familiar with. Addiction, alcohol, something needs extreme focus, firearms. We all know that alcohol and guns is a terrible combination, right? We can agree on that, right? Absolutely. Addiction, controlled substances, something needs extreme focus, heavy machinery. We know somebody that's had an accident on the job, they use heavy machinery, what's the first thing they tell you to do? Go take a drug test. Because they know that controlled substances is not something you need to be on with heavy machinery. But something that we're realizing more so today, addiction, cell phones, something needs extreme focus, driving. There are three types of distracted driving. Number one, manual distracted driving. That's when you take your hands off the wheel. So you're driving along and you realize you forgot a couple of buttons. You just take your hands off the wheel, hit the old knee to the steering wheel move that everybody's probably done once or twice before. Distracted driving. Number two, visual distracted driving. That's when you're driving and you take your eyes off the road. So your hands are on the wheel and you see an accident. What's the first thing people do? Visual distracted driving. And number three, which I think was one of the most dangerous ones, is cognitive distracted driving. And that is, though your hands are on the wheel and your eyes are on the road, you're not mentally focused on driving. So when you're sitting there driving and you're thinking, did I close the garage? Did I take that out the oven? I got so much to do when I get home. And before you do it, you're like, how did I get way down Poplar? I missed three exits. A driver is 60% more likely to have a car accident or a car crash if they're distracted. You're 60% to have a car crash if you're distracted. 60% more likely to have a car crash if you're distracted. Now, if I told you you were 60% more likely for a piano to fall on your head if you were wearing a Bugs Bunny costume, what would you do? Not wear a Bugs Bunny costume, right? So why would you be distracted? Why would you be distracted driving? Going 55 miles an hour, if you take your eyes off the road for five seconds, you've traveled the length of a football field. That's end zone to end zone, essentially not looking at the road. Take a step back and think about how crazy it is that you're going 55 miles an hour, 65, 75, 85 miles an hour, and you just decide, you know what? I'm just going to not look at the road because I need to know what time I Love Lucy comes on right now. I'm just going to not look at the road because I want to know what time the NFL game starts right now. That sense of connection and always having information in our fingertips has become addicting. Now understand this, the human brain cannot do two cognitive skills effectively at the same time. Your brain can't do it. What your brain can do is switch between tasks so fast that it gives the illusion that you're doing them simultaneously. To demonstrate this, we don't have time to do it now, but 
When you get home, I want you to take two utensils. With your left hand, I want you to write your first name. And with your right hand, I want you to write your last name at the same time. It's going to find it's harder than what you think. You won't, be able to do them at the, you won't be able to do them at the same time, but your brain's going to figure out which one do you want me to do first. I can't do both of these at the same time. Now, for those three people out of 800 million that can do this at the same time, think about how low cognitively demanding that is, just writing your name. Now, let's throw something more demanding like driving, texting. You can't do them simultaneously. It won't happen. Now, we all know that somebody that's addicted to their cell phone can't leave home without it, must need it, always have to make a selfie, take a post, share this, text this, but understand that driving is not the time to be doing that. Your life is one of the most precious things you own, might be the most precious thing you own. And is it worth losing for something over a text message? There are 3,200 deaths in America caused by distracted drivers. Out of those 3,200, 400 of those are caused specifically by someone texting. Now think about the most five important people in your life, whether it's your mother, father, daughter, son, grandparents, whomever that may be. Understand how senseless does it sound for them to lose their life because someone was texting and driving. Someone decided to do their makeup while driving. Someone decided to eat while driving. It's a senseless act that can be 100% preventable. Driving is the most dangerous thing you will do on a daily basis. So why would you do something other than pay attention? In closing, I would like to say this. You ask me how dangerous is the world's smallest slot machine? And my answer would be extremely. Every jackpot is not worth it. Now before I end... I wouldn't be me if I didn't leave you with a sense of little motivation. I've been through ups and downs as we all have been. But understand this. Adversity comes to everybody. Crappy stuff happens to everyone. But it's not what happens to you that defines you. It's how you respond. How are you going to respond when you're 18 years old on a football scholarship and become paralyzed from a distracted driver? How are you going to respond when you don't get that promotion that you've worked around so hard for? How are you going to respond when you finally get the courage to ask that girl out and she says no? Are you going to give up? The answer should be no. You are a unique individual. Only you know who you are. You are the only person that's stopping you. There are no limitations to what you can achieve. A great philosopher by the name of Marshall Bruce Mathers III, please look him up when you get there, when you get home. A great philosopher by the name of Marshall Bruce Mathers III once said, there are a million people who are just like you, who dress like you, who walk, talk, and act like you. They might be the next best thing, but they're not quite you. You are the only one that can stop you from being who you truly are. We've all heard the saying that, that the sky's the limit, the right, the sky's the limit, the sky's the limit. I challenge each one of you to think outside the box and say, how can we say the sky's the limit when there's footprints on the moon? There are no limits. The only limits are the ones you impose on yourself here. Thank you. Our next TED Talk is by Dwayne Spencer. In his talk, Dwayne shares how the understanding and influences of social determinants of health can improve and advance health equity. 
Social determinants of health refer to the conditions in the places where people live, work, learn, and play, and that affect a wide range of health risks and outcomes. Duane has worked in nonprofit management for 29 years and has led Memphis Habitat since 2001. He has extensive experience working with a wide range of community constituents and works to create strategic partnerships and impactful collaborations. Enjoy What My Childhood and Substandard Housing Taught Me About Health by Duane Spencer. So this is me. <laughs> Wasn't I a cute baby? Thank you very much. So the child you see here looks happy, and I was. But what you can't see is a child who was also sick a lot. My mother tells me these stories of having to sit up with me at night just to make sure that I could breathe properly. Actually, she tells me, reminds me of it every day of my life, but anyway. <laughs> what my mom didn't know at the time is that our house was making me sick. We had mice, and I'm sure mold and mildew in parts of that old house. And little Duane had bronchitis. And I struggled to breathe normally for many of the formative years of my life. So my truth is, my lived experience of growing up in substandard living conditions has informed my 20-plus years of work as an affordable housing advocate. I now realize that decent housing has a direct impact on the health and well-being of families, young and old. Therefore, decent housing is a social determinant of health. So I didn't even know what social determinants of health were until maybe a few years ago. I can barely say it. It's a mouthful. But I do realize that health starts at home, even though it's also affected by our schools and workplaces, our neighborhoods and communities. The conditions in which we live say a lot about why some Americans are healthier than others and why Americans more generally are not as healthy as they could be. I mean, don't we all want to be as healthy as possible? Yes, that's a resounding yes. But the truth is, not all of us live, work, or play in environments that are conducive to good health. That's why it's important that we understand the relationship between people and the impact of places on health. And we all deserve the opportunity to make choices that lead to good health. That's why I want you to learn about social determinants of health, those conditions in the world where people are born, live, learn, work, play, worship, and age that have a whole host of impacts on our health and well-being. Now, I emphasized age for a reason, because people over 60 are especially affected by social determinants of health, especially if they are in a poverty or low-income household. I've met some of them, and many of them are living in housing that is in pretty dire, dire straits. Homeowners like Ralph, who was wheelchair-bound and couldn't move around his house. He literally could not get to his bathroom. Can you imagine not being able to go, to go into your own bathroom? Ralph was pretty lucky. He had a nephew who was willing to stop by two to three times a day to help him toilet. 
But to mitigate that, strategic doorways in Ralph's home were widened, and then there was a door put directly from Ralph's bedroom to his bathroom. So now, Ralph can move around his home on his own, in his wheelchair, independently. Or Miss Carrie and her grandkids. They lived in a house that had a bad roof. It was allowing moisture to come in, creating mold and mildew situations. Everybody was being affected. Carrie was having respiratory issues and started missing work. Her granddaughter wasn't resting at night and wasn't sleeping well. So she started falling asleep in class, and she saw her grades decline. And her grandson's asthma continued to flare up. After they got a new roof and the mold and mildew was mitigated, Carrie says that everyone's health drastically improved in the house. And now, granddaughter is back on the honor roll. Or Miss Lovey. Don't you love that name, Lovey? <laughs> Miss Lovey was having some mobility issues. She was starting to feel trapped in her own house because she didn't feel comfortable just stepping onto her front porch because of a fear of falling. There weren't any railings around the edge of it. But once railings were added around the edge of the porch and along the steps down to her driveway, Miss Lovey now feels freer and safer and able to move about as much as she likes. So that's why it's important that we understand the impact of these repairs and what they can do for an older adult. They're actually keeping them healthier every day. Along with that, it's keeping them out of the ER from having unnecessary visits or hospitalizations, maybe even early entry into nursing homes. And when that happens, that saves MCOs and insurers millions of dollars that could theoretically be redirected back to more preventative care. Wouldn't it be so cool if we could like, go to our doctor's office and get a prescription to mitigate an issue with our house, a deficiency with our house that then prevents a medical crisis or incident? That'd be cool. So we're all going to continue to age, right? It's happening right here while we're sitting in this auditorium. <laughs> and our houses are going to continue to age. I would venture to say that there are few houses out there that were ever built that took into consideration that the homeowner was going to get older, was going to become more frail, maybe have accessibility or mobility limitations. Those are all things that can impact activities of daily living our ability to live out our day, do things as simple as bathing ourselves, getting up and down off of the toilet, or just walking around our house, maybe even just feeding ourselves. Things that while we're young and healthy, we might take for granted. Activities of daily living, all those things that we take for granted about moving around our house and having the ability to live out our daily lives. We don't want to take them for granted 
because they are the things that create our independence. And that is something that we never should take for granted. That's why innovative organizations right now, mine in particular and others, are working at the intersection of health and housing, trying to uncover unconventional investments so that we can keep investing in aging in place and seeing more older adults be able to live out their lives in the homes they love, the homes they don't want to leave behind. So you might be asking yourself, what does little Dwayne from the first photo have in common with these older adults I'm talking to you about right now? Primarily low income. That was my other truth. I grew up in a household with low incomes, with a low income. The most powerful social determinant of health is income. Think about older adults who are living at or below the poverty level. That creates way too many older adults who can't afford their medications, a healthy meal, or a healthy place to live, or even the funding to make repairs to a home. That's why innovative organizations are working, as I said, to find the dollars to invest so that more families, older adults, can remain in the homes they love for longer. And then at the end of the day, little Dwayne, who you met earlier, he did okay. He was able to reach his full potential, partially because he got out of the housing that was making him sick. So these days, I don't necessarily feel like a victim anymore. I'm not, let's see, what do I feel like? I feel sort of like <laughs> a superhero. <laughs> I feel sort of like a superhero, yeah. Advocating for one of our most cherished and vulnerable populations. And I want to invite all of you to tap into your superhero power and do something courageous like I just did today. Thank you. Thank you. Our next TEDx Memphis talk is by Janet Boscarino. Janet is the co-founder and executive director of Clean Memphis, and she's an environmental and sustainability advocate who challenges us to engage with people at a young age to connect them to the world around them. Enjoy Janet Boscarino's talk, Environment in Us, What Students Can Teach Us. I want us to think about a time when we were in school, when we were younger, and we were working on something or engaged with something that really resonated with us, really struck us and stayed with us until this day. I'll share a story of mine. I grew up about an hour from here in a small town, rural community. When I was in the 11th grade, we had a new English teacher come. He was from Colorado. He was different. He was cool. We're all enamored with him. And he gave us this assignment to write about the worst day of our lives. Now, I avoided this for as long as I possibly could. And then finally, the day before it was due, I sat down and I just wrote. Nonstop, no edits, no rewrites. I just let it flow. 
I wrote about when my father died when I was a little girl, about my sadness, my confusion, that I was afraid of his closet. Death be a really strange thing to a seven-year-old. I just let it flow. And about a week or so later, he kept me after class, and he said, your story really moved me, like the vulnerability and the imagery of it. And I, when I think about that experience, what it reminds me of is that he really gave me the opportunity to engage in something real in my life. It caused me to reflect and to express things I had clearly been carrying around for a long time. It really shaped me. I went on to value storytelling and to get a degree in journalism eventually, and value story to this day, it's, it's kind of how I see people as a collection of their stories. Now I want us to all think about a time when we were younger, when we had an experience that really engaged us in or connected us to the environment. For some people, that's easy. But for many of us, it's hard. We didn't grow up with this real experience that fostered stewardship or helped us see that we were part of this bigger ecosystem and that how we interacted with it mattered. We're kind of disconnected. But what if we are to emotionally and intellectually connect to an environmental issue to make it real? Well, environmental issues can be kind of complex, so I like to start with food. We all eat. It's how we share our cultures. It's how we come together. Would it surprise you to know that every year in the United States, 40% of the food that is grown or produced is wasted? like $230 billion worth of food is uneaten, while one in six people are food insecure. Now that waste contributes to 10% of greenhouse gas emissions that cause climate change. Such a growing and significant number that the United Nations has identified food waste as a major target for climate action. And what's important about this is nearly 40% of that waste comes from us and our own homes. We're the biggest generator. But we're very disconnected from our food systems and from the economic, social, and environmental issues related to food waste. It's not part of our daily lives. Let me show you what it looks like when we connect this issue to the students that we work with annually. Now, our education team at Clean Memphis has really the joy of working with nearly 10,000 students annually. And they take these sort of abstract global environmental concepts and they bring them home to life here in our city, in our community, in our schools. Now, when we're talking about food, we begin with where our food comes from and how it moves through the system, the issue of food access, and the problem of food waste. Now, armed with this information, our students host food waste audits, which means that over a few-day period, they literally sort and weigh and measure food and milk that's not eaten, that's wasted. They also survey students to gain a better understanding of why they didn't eat something. Now, we work with them to compile this research and give it back to the district or whatever school we're working with. And there's really some positive outcomes from this process and from this work. Teachers and cafeteria staff are being retrained on what students have to take versus what they want. 
Menu items are being substituted based on student choice and preference and their feedback. And my favorite, the establishment of share tables, where when students take whole fruits or packaged food and decide they don't want them, they were being thrown away, now they move to a share table so that other students can take them or they can be moved to after-school programming or taken home by a student or family that may need that. And students are also creating their own campaigns around the value of food and why it shouldn't be wasted. Now, what we see when we're working with kids is that when you engage them in something real in their life, they are better able to see themselves as part of this bigger system and recognize their own agency to make change. Now, we know environmental education is having a positive impact on our students. They're enthusiastic about learning, their attendance is better, and they're better grasping the concepts that we're working on. But now we have even more evidence that environmental education is powerful. Stanford University recently released a study where they evaluated over 119 peer-reviewed studies over a 20-year period about the power of environmental education. And what this study, the study showed is that students involved in environmental education have improved critical thinking skills, problem-solving, self-esteem, civic engagement, and it helps shape their values long-term. This is powerful evidence of the value of environmental education. Now, far too often, though, environmental education is relegated to the sidelines. It's a unit or lesson taught once a year rather than being the foundational lens with which all other topics or subjects can be viewed. And this is a missed opportunity because schools provide the perfect laboratory for exploring real-world issues. That's why we advocate so strongly for environmental education and why we advocate for an environmental IQ. Our students need to understand the foundational connection they have to the environment. They are the next innovators, policymakers, and CEOs, and they deserve the opportunity to have the connection and knowledge to shape a better future. Now, what about us as individuals, as adults? You know, we could share four or five things that we can do to have a better impact on the environment, but you can get that stuff online. What I'm suggesting is that we start at the beginning with a shift in consciousness and an understanding that we are part of a system that is interconnected and how we interact within that system matters. Our ancestors understood this. They understood their connection to and reliance on the environment. There's nods to it in most all cultures, significant amount of references to it in Native American and African cultures. Their connection to the environment was real. It was part of their daily lives, and in many ways, it was like a religious experience. Their very lives depended on it, as does ours. And that fundamental knowledge can help shape our actions and decisions moving forward. There are complex environmental problems, for sure, that require policy, transformation of industry, and real environmental justice. But like our students, if we can connect with what's right in front of us, what's real in our lives, what's within our reach, and allow the awareness of our connection to this larger system to help shape our actions and decisions, then we can begin to build a better, safer planet for us and for them.
Thank you. We hope these TEDx Memphis talks have inspired you, sparked your curiosity, or empowered you to utilize the power of storytelling to make connections and move our community forward. Head to the show notes in today's episode for video links from these TED Talks, links to extended conversations with some of our speakers, and to access the full playlist from the 2023 conference. Until next week, bye. This week's episode is made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com.